0: Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us. But when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach.
1: Right, today we are talking to Jody Byer. She has a master's degree in public administration and is a 14-year veteran of law enforcement. She has recently been on the policing the police podcast and actually did a tedx talk in winter park regarding that same subject she has been actively engaged in her community uh, a lifelong public servant that uh, is dedicated to integrity and uh and law enforcement so jody can you talk a little bit about what got you started on this police and the police?
2: Well, um, I come from a line of law enforcement. Um, my dad was, a, he worked for Los Angeles Sheriff's Department for over 26 years. My mom worked for a variety of police chiefs and superior court judges as I was growing up. So I've always been around um, the arena of public service and law enforcement and knew uh, ultimately I would end up going into law enforcement myself. So I've kind of, um, always followed the path of um, having a heart of service and serving the community and being plugged into what people in the community want. And um, obviously the local or the recent theme has been about transparency and policing. And that's been my goal since I started in 2006. Um, Since probably about the 11th or 12th day after I'd been released from field training, I came upon an incident that kind of opened my eyes to how the public feel as though that they don't have a fair voice within law enforcement. And I've kind of just carried through with that theme throughout my career.
1: Are you at liberty to talk about that incident?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I'm still in touch with the, uh, the victim of that situation that occurred back in 2006, actually earlier than that. I began a specific agency in 2006 and um came to know a particular citizen of a a city that i had been sworn into um through his complaint about the wife of a public official in that city so um i went to the residence and um to take a report and um ended up finding out that this particular um, person was being stalked by the wife of a local mayor.
1: Pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did that play out?
2: Well, um, I, again, I was a brand new officer and I took the report and during the time in which I was taking the report, I was pretty much being harassed by my road patrol supervisor to leave the residence and um, I knew that there was something very suspicious about that. So I actually told the victim to keep a copy of the handwritten report that I was doing while I was on the scene because I felt as if I was being pressured to leave um, that particular call, even though there was no other calls of service holding, and I confirmed that. Um, so I had the victim keep a copy of my handwritten report and then was subsequently called into the police agency and pretty much chewed out by my supervisor for failing to depart the location.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah, again, I was brand new. I think I'd only been maybe 11 or 12 days on the road by myself at that point and had already stirred uh, the pot and ruffled some feathers of my administration there.
1: Now, in, in the podcast you did, For policing the police you were talking about uh, a more recent incident
2: absolutely yeah there was an incident that happened in february of last year with the agency i was with uh last year i'm now with another new agency um who i feel is ethical and and the chief supports me where i'm at um it happened um with a fellow officer that was my partner at the time and um an incident happened with a defendant that had been arrested on scene and he's he's still incarcerated. I, I believe he's serving out a two year sentence for an incident that I had told multiple people that I felt was inappropriate. Basically the defendant um, had his rights violated and was arrested and incarcerated um, in an improper manner. And I've been speaking out about it since then And I had been terminated last year, basically shortly thereafter, reporting it. So as a whistleblower, um, that was my second such incident involving trying to bring light to improper uh, handling of an arrest.
1: And how has that been playing out uh, with the other agencies that have become involved?
2: Um, I have gone through every possible contact and length to be able to get assistance for this family and their son, um, who is listed as a defendant, um, and pretty much every route that I've taken, I've had doors slammed in my face and I've been told to go away. So to date, um, I have really gotten no assistance from anybody, um, other than the family, themselves trying to free him and and get attention for his plate but you know when unfortunately when citizens are up against um, public agencies that have public coffers to spend money and defend themselves against uh, private citizens and their own private attorneys it's a it's a very very um, unfortunate situation because we don't have the strength that Public agencies do as private citizens. We—it's hard for us to fight that monster.
1: Now, as you were talking th- about that, the this the disparities, and uh, recently I did an interview where the discussion led into, um, you know, the role of public servants. And the fact that as public servants, whether it's law enforcement or fire, our job is to serve the public. Correct. And one thing, and and it's typical in many of the um, lower income um, areas of the community where there seems to be Well, it not seems to be, the statistics are there, that there are more calls to service in lower income areas than in, you know, more affluent areas. And um, in those areas, sometimes, you know, the calls for service aren't necessarily what you would call an emergency, you know, and, and... most cases but for them it is an emergency and our job is to go out there and assist them in whatever issue they're having whether it's medical or you know some sort of domestic issue right whatever now in law enforcement it's a little bit different than fire because in fire you know we're evaluating the scene uh in a different light, where law enforcement you're evaluating the scene as to, you know, has a crime been committed? Is this person telling the truth? Is that person telling? The tr- right. So, so you are having to judge the character of of the the citizens and um, making quick judgments a lot of times yes. with very little information. Yes. Now, but.
2: And of course, we have to clear the scene for your safety. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so <laughs> now, when, when we're talking about that, how, how difficult is it to, you know, well, for law enforcement to not allow personal bias to come into that decision-making uh, <clears throat> decision-making process because it, it i think it plays a role in in everybody's lives we you know it's how we're socialized right but there has to be training that law enforcement goes through to you know educate and uh improve that decision-making ability. And-
2: yeah, there's there's absolutely, yeah. Of course you go through you know, human diversity training both within the academy um, as well as in-service training when you're an active law enforcement official. And there's required um, coursework through every state um, office that officiates the responsibilities of municipal and government agencies, such as in Florida, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement requires certain numbers of hours per year within um, coursework related to human diversity, um, elder law, um, constitutional law, you know, all kinds of, uh, they have, you know, classes on how not to profile, if, you know, if that's the appropriate, actually, I think they use the word bias nowadays. Um, so to answer your question about how are law enforcement officers trained and how to combat that bias, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm I'm a Native American female, right? I'm a federally registered Native American female, so like my mindset might be a little bit different than say a Caucasian male that grew up in the Midwest, right? Their exposure, and I grew up in Los Angeles, so my level of exposure to diversity is very great, not only from my own genealogy aspect, but from you know growing up in Los Angeles. Um, so every person's going to react. To their environment differently, based on their past experiences and their own personal upbringing and their own educational level. There's a lot of things that come into that decision-making factor. Um, but again, we are trained to understand human diversity and to also keep in mind our safety in an environment. You know, we, you know, if I walk into a room. Um, I'm looking at everyone around me and I'm not thinking oh they're all criminals and I'm not thinking oh they're all innocent of anything you know that could potentially come to harm me. I'm thinking in a totality of circumstances of the environment, you know, the the am- amount of personnel that are around me such as fire, EMT, police. You know, if I walk into a situation by myself and I'm surrounded by 40 people, I'm going to handle myself in a certain manner versus if I'm surrounded by 10 firefighters and we're at a medical call helping an 80-year-old elderly woman that um, hit her head. You know, I mean, you're going to look at the totality of everything and base your thought processes on that. And again, you're right. It is a very quick situation. You have to make that determination pretty quickly. Are you in a safe environment? Are you not? You know, what are the elements that play into that decision-making at that point?
1: Most of, most of the discussions that, that I've been having... Well, they they center around leadership and <clears throat> lessons learned through mistakes that we've made either personally or professionally,
0: right? Um,
1: even you know our own personal leadership philosophy and in in your role as a law enforcement officer and actually you know in, in law enforcement. There's uh, you know a very small percentage of law enforcement officers that are that are women, and then even fewer that are um, you know of ethnic origin, either Native American right. or African American Hispanic. Right. so as a Native American woman, you make up a very, very small percentage of. Tremendously.
2: Resources. Yeah. <laughs> tremendously small. Yeah. I would say in the United States, um, that I would maybe 15 to 18% are, um, they, they comprise of the law enforcement force in, in the I S I can't speak to really the rest of the world, but, um, yeah. And out of that 15 to 18% of females that exist, you know, I don't know the exact statistics for what percentages of a minority, um, level and I don't know what the statistics are for Native American women in law enforcement. Again, it's probably very, very small. I know when I was with a, a sheriff's office, we had approximately 456 deputies. And out of all of those, there was myself and one other Native American and it was a male. So if you if you pull the data from that, you're probably going to be at point zero 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 two percent or some ridiculous um statistic?
1: Yeah, I um, I actually pulled the numbers from uh, census data that was, you know, the last full census was 2010, but they update the data right. Right. Um, and extrapolate what they can from it um, to come up with numbers. The last uh, set of numbers was in 2018, where they've got total law enforcement in the united states it's about a 19% um 19%, 19% makeup of female law enforcement officers out of uh, 1.4 million
2: yeah and again the, if you you if you if you break down that 19% you're going to find that a large percentage percentage of those individuals are not road patrol they're not the front and center Uh, law enforcement officers that you're going to run into. They're going to be public information. They're going to be um, community resources. They're going to be school resource officers, school resource deputies. They're going to be um, more along the administrative side of law enforcement. And I can speak from that experience as well. So, um, you know.
1: I know that in 2010, the, the percentage was roughly about 13%. That was and for whatever reason, I couldn't find the data uh of what you're talking about but i I know that it is much less than the nineteen percent of actual patrol right, room right. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you were
2: or... No, you're fine, yeah, no, I can <laughs> uh, go on forever about data
1: <laughs> <laughs> the The other set of numbers that I came up with and and I've discussed this with uh, some other individuals was you know. The the 2018 numbers show for frontline fire department, not including volunteer but actual paid career firefighters, and right. there is five percent makeup yeah. of women. And and I've done a lot of research and <clears throat> all of the research. Points to a, a culture, a culture in the fire service, and I and I know it's consistent in law enforcement um, that there's kind of a machismo culture right. that that uh, excludes women, and when when women when women come into male-dominated fields they're up against either subtle or not so subtle biases and and discrimination. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about your experiences.
2: Well, I am one of those people that, uh, and I've been told this repeatedly, I'm brutally honest. And uh, if you get in my face, I'm gonna get right back up into yours. So I tend to be, I guess, more on the aggressive side um, of the female factor. And that probably hails from the fact that, again, I did grow up in a law enforcement family and around law enforcement. So I know the weaknesses that they tend to look for in women or even men that tend to be more quiet or muted or whatever it may be. Because I haven't specifically had any issues with um, being treated improperly or poorly or, or differently, I think. It's a mindset, you go into law enforcement knowing that you've got to be in control. You've got to have a command presence. If you don't, you are putting yourself in harm's way and you're putting your partners at risk, right? I mean, it's the same thing with uh, women in military. A lot of people don't believe that women should be frontline combat because it's a risk to their male counterparts in the field because everyone's gonna be like, oh, we've gotta save the female first, right? I think women that go into any kind of male-dominated environment have to go in with the knowledge that they've got to perform at 200% of what is expected by a standard male. And if you want to say that that's a bias or if you want to say that that's discriminatory, you can say that. But it's all in the mindset of success and how you can push yourself to the expectations that you have not only for yourself but for the people that expect from you around you. You know, you, I don't go into anything with the mindset of, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to do just enough, right? You know, they say, people say, oh, it's good enough for government work, right? Yeah. I've always gone into an environment saying, I want to excel. I have a vision of excellence. Um, and I, I've gone into law enforcement with the same mindset that I am here to perform a service for the public. I work for the public. I don't work for, for, um, you know, for, I, I, I hate to say this because I don't, even, I don't even go in with the mindset I've worked for the administration. My goal and my oath when you take that service oath as a police officer and even as a firefighter, you're serving your community, right? You're not self-serving. You're not serving your administration. You're serving the public. That's what the public tax dollars are paying for, for you to be that social service to them. And um, so as far as like feeling, Mishandled as a female in law enforcement. Don't get me wrong. I've had lieutenants say to me when we went to lunch, You sit over there. And I had to sit at a table by myself while a group of guys ate at another table. That's fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings. You know, I've got thick skin. I could care less. I proved myself in the field, and that same lieutenant, a few meals later, invited me to the table. You know, trust is earned. It's not something that you should expect. And um, if you can prove yourself in the workplace, regardless as to your gender, race, sex, creed, great. If you can't, you know, don't be hurt. If somebody has got something nasty to say to you, you've got to prove yourself.
1: All of that is really good advice. And it's advice that you would give anybody, male or female, you've got to, you've got to work extremely hard, you know, go into your position, whatever uh, task you're taking on, whatever goals you set for yourself, you go into it, you know, with a mindset that failure is not an option. Okay. Now, <laughs> you you have a much different background yes. than than a lot of women, and I'm sure you could see that when when women come into male dominated occupations law enforcement fire and <clears throat> there's not a lot of female representation in in higher ranks where in my experience women that have moved up in the fire service very few of them uh have the reputation of you know they earned that spot legitimately right um and that's i I think just like a a typical male neanderthal mindset (laughs) of you know that's the only way they could have done it you know right (laughs) well with that bias being there and you know, brand new women coming in and they hear the well-respected men or their role models, mentors, talking negatively about, you know, these women that should be serving as a role model and an example of success What these women can achieve. They're looking at it as, well, I don't want to be viewed as somebody like that. Yeah. And then over time. I think it would be hard not to take on an attitude of, you know, I'm going to struggle my entire career to experience a level of success that, you know, these guys are going to achieve with little to no issues. So it's well, got to be discouraging, you know, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put myself in the, the, role of, of a woman coming in, and, and just yeah. some of the things that I've seen, and actually some of my behaviors that I'm not exactly proud of when I first came into the fire service. Right. It, it took a very strong uh, female firefighter to to set me straight.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, you talking about how you come into that culture, right? That's the mob mentality that you fell into. You're you're, you're surrounded by a group of men that all feel a certain way, and of course, they're going to indoctrinate you to that mindset. Uh, I don't really prescribe to like what you're saying as far as women not having um, a fair platform. That's the victim mentality, I think. If somebody, if a female comes in with the mindset, oh, what is me? I'm never gonna make it. Oh, look at this other woman. They're bashing her. You know, that's a victim mentality to me. I don't. I've never gone into the workplace with the mindset that, uh, you know, I'm up against all kinds of odds. All I did was worked hard, um, was educated, properly trained. You know, uh, followed all the same physical requirements that the males did and met those and I'd, I never thought I never thought about it that way, and I think if you go into it with the mindset that you are up against barricades and walls, then you're you're setting yourself up for failure. If you just align yourself with good leaders, and ethical people um, that display integrity, you'll you'll be part of the group that you need to succeed, you know, appropriately. I've always aligned myself with people that um, I could look to as a mentor. Um, and even early on when I was getting into law enforcement I aligned myself with a major at a South Florida agency and he basically took me under his wing and said oh you're getting your degree in criminal justice don't waste your time switch your degree to public administration and that's how I ended up in that um, that degree genre but yeah I, I you know going back to the fact that there are people that say, oh, that woman, that lieutenant only got that position because she slept with this guy or whatever. I mean, yeah, you're going to have that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a male peer or a female peer. People are going to start rumors. They're going to be upset that they're not in that position of, of power, and they're going to be naysayers against that person. So be it. You know, that, that's the kind of person you don't want to align yourself with, and I don't have any respect for people that are rumor starters in a workplace environment anyway, so I really wouldn't care if they said that. And I did have people say that because when I first started the agency that I was with in 2006, pretty quickly, I went from road patrol to becoming a public information officer for the agency and on-camera interviews for national networks. So I had people telling me, well, who'd you sleep with to get that position? And if you looked at the hierarchy of the police agency, it showed the police chief an arm with me, an arm with the deputy chief, and then the following command staff. So basically looked like I was second in command underneath the chief. That's what it looked like on the hierarchy board. And that's not what it was intended to be. It was because I I directly reported to the chief. And that was because um, when media got in touch with us, I was the one to write the press releases and do the on-camera interviews. And um, so that level of instruction had to be high up. It wasn't because I was second-in-command. But I did have people making negative comments to me about it. And I said, hey, you're more than welcome to come with me anytime, any day to meetings, to presentations. You can come see what I do. I was welcoming. I never treated it as a negative response. I was always very open to them learning what I did for um, my day-to-day basis. And every person that came with me went back to the agency with a greater knowledge as to what my Focus was, and they would tell all the other officers, "Oh, you have it wrong. She's really a hard worker. I would never want her job. It's too much stress." Um, and then go from there. So it's all in how you present yourself and how you um, direct those responses back at people. If you're negative about it, they're just going to say, "Oh yeah, I'm right. See how she behaved." But just present yourself professionally. Um, speak with you know knowledge. Um, be articulate and people will ultimately come to the realization that you're there because of merit, not because of anything else.
1: So in the the last 14 years, have you been in a position to train or mentor another female law enforcement officer?
2: Yes, I have. Um, My very first mentoring was back in 2007 And I'm very sorry to say that that officer has since passed away from uh, cancer. She uh, died at the age of 39 from a brain tumor. So I'm very sorry to to say that. But she was um, very eager to learn and um, initially did not want to have anything to do with me, (laughs) like most of the other officers there. Um, I've always been sort of uh, looked at as maybe the black sheep of the group because I am very outspoken about transparency and policing and, and ethical policing and integrity and policing. And you would think that that would put a police officer on a higher level of respect, but in actuality, when you are an outspoken person about those kind of topics, it scares people and, and it makes them feel that you are the internal affairs portion of law enforcement and they are, um, intimidated. So I tend to always be in sort of an outsider looking in mode.
1: I'm looking for maybe some advice that you would give, uh, well, young fire, law enforcement, women, um, and even women that find themselves in a role uh, as a mentor. You know, how, how, can, how can women support one another in these male-dominated fields?
2: Well, first of all, we talked earlier about statistics and how few women there are in those kind of roles to begin with. So I want to touch, before I answer your question, I want to touch on the fact that when people do say there's a very few amount of women in leadership positions and fire and police, I look at it, again, as a totality, right? If you've got 100 qualified applicants, and only two of those are female, and of those 100 people, 40 have an advanced degree, and 30 have a tenure of over 10 years, you're, you're shrinking that margin down to qualified applicants, right? So I would not expect to see women in positions, greater positions of leadership within policing and fire because the pool is smaller to pick from. And I don't believe that just because it's a female or just because they're uh, of certain race that they deserve to be pushed to the high points of leadership and policing and fire. You have to be educated, you have to be trained, you have to be tenured, you have to have so many things in order to qualify for a leadership position that I don't think just the basis of being a female or a minority female quantifies that ability to handle that um, aspect. So I I wanted to touch on that.
1: No, I, I agree 100%.
2: Yeah. A lot of people think that I would have the opposing thought process that out of 400 deputies, there's only three women in leadership, you know, and they expect me to complain about it. And I have always given the same answer. No, you know, does that person qualify through their level of education, training, tenure, and so forth? If they don't, they don't deserve that position just because they're a female. To me, that's a, what people sometimes coin as reverse discrimination, right? But there is no such thing as reverse discrimination. It's discrimination. Right. It's discrimination. And I've talked to a lot of male applicants in law enforcement because at one point I was a recruiter for an agency. And I had a lot of men saying, well, I'm not going to get the job anyways because I'm a white male. And I always said, no, don't, don't tell me that you're not gonna get the job because you're a white male. And of course they knew that I was a a, a Native American female through our conversations. And so they're thinking I'm looking for minority females. Right. No, I was looking for the best qualified applicants and it did tend to be um, Caucasian males because that's the applicant pool. If I, as a recruiter, go to a college and I, and I focus on, um, you know, Black females or Hispanic females to recruit from, then, um, you know, yeah, I'll have, more, I'll have a greater level of female minority applicants. But again, culturally, you have to look at how people are raised. Um, just like I go into an environment, like you said, some people have a certain bias towards this or a certain bias towards this. Um, a lot of minorities grow up in an environment that they don't like law enforcement. So, how are you going to recruit a group of people that have a bias against law enforcement to put them into law enforcement to maybe change the face of that environment it's a It's a challenge
1: right yeah, no I, I agree and and I, I've actually done quite a bit of research on this as well it, It's centered around women in the fire service, but a lot of my sources had focused on race. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically what the research showed was when you take a uh, a career field or an occupation or even an organization, but if you're looking at the the fire service or law enforcement throughout our country's history, it's been predominantly white male. And so you have generations of that ingrained uh, just kind of self-recruiting. Right. And when you have a a history of, you know, this this is the culture and this is the traditional makeup and here's the path. I come into the fire service, I see a clear path to success. I have plenty of examples of how I get there, and there are very few uh, role models or examples for minorities or women, and when when somebody comes into an organization, it, it's nice to be able to see like okay i've got a clear path and there's been somebody here that's already blazed the trail and achieved you know my idea of success already i can follow their example um if if that's not there then they're going to have to navigate the the different um cultural biases that sort of thing to to figure out that thing and, and i mean i think you've kind of cracked the code it, it it's just it's, it's hard work, but when you have subtle and, and just outright discrimination in some cases, I think when you have very qualified, highly skilled, highly intelligent candidates, whether it's minority or, or uh, gender related or female, if, if they have all of these these qualifications and they're driven, a lot of times I think they're going to look to other uh, career paths where there is a clear line of, I know I'm going to be successful
2: Right. if I go well, this route. Money comes into play too a lot of times. I mean, I've been both public sector and private sector and for a period of time I left Police services to kind of regain my personal exposure on a personal note. And I left for two years and went into the private sector with a very large company with over 40,000 employees. They're international. And uh, to be honest with you, I fought more within the circles of a private sector organization than I did in the public sector. Um, I faced A lot of people telling me, oh, you can't lift the certain weight because you're a female. You're only five foot three. How are you going to lift this? Um, Oh, don't you have kids? Doesn't that mean that you should, you know, you're not going to be able to work extended hours for our team? I mean, I literally had people saying that to me. And of course, my immediate response was, "Uh, do you not realize my background? Um, I'm a little confused, you know, like I... I left that company because of the treatment that I was getting as a female. So, um, you know, talking about biases and diversity and all these other things, you have to really be very aggressive with your um, treatment of that circumstance. And I basically sat down with my supervisor at the private sector company and I said, look, if I hear you say this thing one more time, we are going to have a problem. And it ended up being maybe two weeks later, he said something. I went straight to HR. He ended up having to have a human diversity course after that because of <laughs> because of me speaking up. So, you know, again, you've got to really just stand your ground and, and voice your opinion. And maybe some people are a little bit scared to do that. And I just have never been scared of that kind of thing. And that's why I've been a whistleblower, whistleblower times two now, because... I'm not afraid um, to make a wave. And it's that whole adage that um, either lead or get out of the way, right? So if you can't forge through a system yourself on your own merit, understanding, background, history, without having somebody greater than you to lead you, then you really shouldn't be in that position of leadership regardless. You need to have a vision and you need to have strength and conviction and push yourself to where you wanna be You can't just place blame on the fact that nobody was there before you to forge it, right? There's a first for everyone and a first for everything. And if you really want something, you're going to be hungry enough to achieve that vision.
1: That's awesome. Which brings us to the leadership part. I really love to hear your philosophy on leadership. And, and um, again, A lot of my research points to the value of women in leadership roles in male-dominated fields because of the, and again, this is backed up by a lot of research, where women by and large are much better at communication, which is the foundation of effective leadership, Um, much more empathetic, which Goes to a much higher level of emotional intelligence, which right. again has been proven to be a, a huge uh, part of somebody's makeup. When you look at them as when people are evaluated for their abilities as a leader, and you and you find somebody that just has it all, and they're you know engaging and people just want to follow them, what you'll find is that they have a much higher level of emotional intelligence. Right. They, they can put themselves in other people's shoes and they're very effective at, at communicating. All of these things, women have, you know, by and large, uh, a, a much greater acuity. Um, so when, when the culture of fire and law enforcement is more exclusive. I I believe that these these occupations are limiting their their pool of great leaders and uh, the ability to learn from them and improve the overall uh, leadership qualities of the organization. So one thing that I've found traveling around the country, um, for, for different educational opportunities and dealing with people from a lot of different organizations is that everybody will complain about the lack of leadership.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and it, it just kind of, uh, it, it struck me at some point that there has to be some sort of correlation between Um, lack of leadership and fewer numbers of women. Right. I might be reaching there, but I I think there's something to it.
2: You know, you and I, I think, are about the same age. We're Generation Xers, I believe, right? So um, our mindset, I think we're starting to be a little bit more our generation forward or more open to the idea of women in positions of um, power within police and fire and the, the generations before might have that whole mindset of if it ain't broke don't fix it right and um, so and I know you as a leader within fire have faced um, challenges where you saw um, you had a certain vision for improvement in fire services and yet you had to answer to somebody that was maybe 20 years your senior And it had been done the certain way for so many generations before they were like, well, yeah, we don't really wanna waste our time revamping that program based on what you feel. They they lived in that old mindset, that old school mindset, right? So trying to change the culture and police and fire is gonna take decades. And it's definitely not from a lack of trying and not from a lack of knowledge that they can be approved upon. It's just the mindset of the people that are still in positions of control And until they age out and get replaced by newer blood that have a different vision, it's going to stay pretty consistent with the way it has been for decades. And it's like that in anything. I mean, you look at politics, um, same thing. You know, you're dealing with the old adage and the old mindsets of people that have been in office for 20 years and are in their 70s right is going to be different than a 28 year old coming up through the ranks of city administration to go through electoral processes and legislation and congress and so forth you've got to mold these people as they get through the system and it's the same way in police and fire so you know there's hope it's just we've got to be patient and um you know i think women coming up through high school, we really need to start at a younger age to kind of recruit those future firefighters and future police officers. We need to get them, um, we need to get a better uh, system in place for neighborhoods that maybe are disadvantaged to have a better viewpoint on policing and everybody loves firefighters. You you guys don't have that challenge, but you know, not everybody <laughs> likes law enforcement and I think the tides are changing with all the local um, uprising about law enforcement transparency. I think the focus is going to be on social services through law enforcement, and maybe that will start to transform the idea for women to go into law enforcement, because I always went into with the mindset that I'm a social um, servant. Yes, I wear a badge. Yes, I wear a taser. Yes, I wear a, a gun on my hip. But very rarely have I ever been in a position where I had to use those tools against um, a citizen because I would first take the opportunity to um, get to know that person. You should really know your community that you work in, first of all. So when people in your community know you, sometimes on a first name basis, you know, they would call me Officer Jody. I had a better relationship with that community and I didn't have to present myself in such a hook 'em book'em type behavior, right? I was I was the candy cop. The kids would run up to me knowing that I had can that I had lollipops in my trunk or I had that teddy bear um, in my patrol car for them. So kind of changing that stereotypical hook 'em and book'em, you know, head thumping cop is, is really important to get aligned with the community and their needs and to get them to understand that we're not all there to, to be brutal. You know, we are there to counsel them, to help them find the right local resources if they need food, if they need shelter, if they need you know assistance with their med- with their um, phone bill or their light bill. These are all things that I've done. Um, I've helped people get cataract surgery for free. I've helped people get into a, an apartment. You know, they're, we're social servants first and foremost. And I think as soon as people start to understand that our full focus is not to hurt them. Yes, we have to protect ourselves in an environment where we're in danger, but that's not our focus. Our focus is not to hurt people. It's to really, really go into the system and try to help people.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I kind of cut you off when I asked you to talk about your philosophy on leadership. Um, So if you're willing to go into that, um,
2: maybe, I, you know, I think, um, in law enforcement, there's, again, there's a lot of people that go into it and they, they, I hate to say anything negative about people in law enforcement, but you and I both know that nobody goes into it to make a million dollars, right? And right. you touched on it briefly that when you have a group of people that are highly educated, they're probably gonna go into a genre of some other means because they have the mode of education behind them to support them in a financial gain, right? In, in an environment whether it be banking or real estate or or sciences or you know the medical background, they're going to make more money than a law enforcement official. So you tend to end up with less educated um, individuals within law enforcement. And it's starting to change. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people that come out of the military and they have their GI bill and it's paid for their college. Um, so you are starting to get agencies that won't hire you unless you have a minimum of associates. But we all know associates is like a high school education, even bachelor's degrees are becoming more of like a high school education, Um, so the idea of leadership and law enforcement um, should really focus on getting our applicants um, better pay. You're going to garner um, a more educated applicant, that person that's more educated in the community is going to deal more effectively with the public. They're going to be more articulate. They're going to understand more of the societal needs. They're going to understand SWOT methods, right? When you do SWOT analysis on a, on a community need, you can get to the base function of why that community is dealing with a certain aspect of um, whether it be drug dealing or homelessness. You know, that's what I did with my first agency is I went in and I did a SWOT analysis to determine why do we have so many calls of service related to public intox- uh, intoxication? right? And I found that the mode of that reasoning was because we had a lot of homeless people that lived in our community. And so what did I do? I set out a project to get those homeless people off the streets and get them the resources they need. And our calls for service related to indigent um, individuals dropped by 80%. So, you know, you really have to have the more of a, a mindset of, um, what's the root cause of that problem? So going back to leadership and policing and fire, you have to have somebody that's more educated, but with that comes with the need for them to make more money. With that comes higher taxes. Are the public willing to you know, release their purse strings? Maybe every single house in that community maybe pays another $80 a year in taxes. Nobody wants to pay more money in taxes, but yet they complain that they don't have appropriate or police or EMT services in their community, right? They're upset with the length of time it took for that response. They don't understand that we have to follow guidelines with line item budgets and um, fiscal restrictions every October and, and that, that creates that tightening on our belt to not hire the adequate amount of police and fire services. And they don't understand the connections between taxes and the quality and quantity of public service. So ultimately, leadership um, in law enforcement and fire needs to kind of connect with the community, create more opportunities for workshops for the public to understand how they can plug in, help um, police and fire services, and um, maybe, you know, maybe if somebody comes and volunteers to be a grant writer, they can help gain more funds for that local um, program and get more staff, right? So that's going to increase the the um, increase the quantity of of public servants. That's gonna reduce the uh, quantity of time you wait on that service. It's going to improve the relationship with the community. It's going to reduce the quantity of calls for service because you're out in the public more. There's a lot of connections between a lot of different things that people don't understand. And if leadership is ineffective in their um, education and their communication levels with the community and their employees, then you're going to have a less of a um, tool to lead the rest of your organization. And of course, that's when people come in and they say, we have awful leadership. My lieutenant just doesn't know how to communicate. My captain doesn't know how to tell me how to do this without being demanding. Right. There, it, there's a lot that goes into it and people just don't get
1: it. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that. And no especially in, in government leadership, like local government leadership, right. a lot of times they, they have the ability to communicate with the public that they serve. Right. The, the correlation between, you know, a higher budget for law enforcement and, and fire. Yeah. Um,
2: and now people are calling, let's defund the police, let's defund the police. You know, I think that whole methodology of defunding the police, it came from what was originally intended to try to get more help in social services versus the um, the money being allocated to, say, a bear cat that would knock down a door, right, on, that's more of a military mindset in law enforcement. Um, I think they went about it all wrong in calling it defunding because it gave all of us in law enforcement kind of this it's us versus them kind of feeling and it really should never be about us versus them you know we are first and foremost citizens of our community citizens of the United States and we're partnerships with the community we're not enemies of the community and so when people started talking about defunding us it put us on a defense and made us feel like You know nobody really values us and hence the you know basically the strikes at atlanta police department right which was never even publicized on the forefronts and and news because they don't want people to know that there was a a strike by the atlanta pd i'm calling it a strike now there was no official signs or anything like that but we all know what happened behind the scenes and the calls of 911 service hundreds of calls went unanswered because there was no cops to answer those calls But, um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there, and I just want to be honest with people that I meet whenever they find out that I'm in law enforcement. I'm very honest with them, and I think they appreciate that transparency. And you go back to talking about the EQ or emotional intelligence level of women in police and fire, and you're right. You know, we do have, I think, we have a greater um, ability to get our points across and speak Openly and communicate effectively, and you know have a better line of connectivity between um, ourselves and our coworkers and the community and the services available to the community. I pride myself on that, and I think if it weren't for my ability to be effective um, in communication, I'm really I'm really ineffective as a police officer. You know, that's just, it's just bad business, I think, if you can't communicate well.
1: Right. So <clears throat> before we go, it, I think it would speak volumes if you could share maybe um, an an example of maybe one of your personal or professional failures that, that really uh, affected you. Profoundly, where it it made you better when you recovered from that event. Um, the lessons that you learned, what you are carrying with you now as you move forward in your life, that really um, you know maybe shaped uh, the individual that you are. That you know by sharing this uh, piece of your past, maybe you can help somebody else uh, avoid that same mistake.
2: Right, exactly. And, you know, if you did get an opportunity to watch my TEDx, that's something that I touched on, is that we are a sum of all of our uh, life experiences, right? And that becomes um, who we are. We, We become a sum of everything that we've dealt with in the past, whether it be good or whether it be bad, you know, you've grown from that experience and that knowledge and it helps kind of form you on the path where you should be. And I would say the most transformational experience I had um, was going back to the 11th day that I was released off of field training and I came in contact with the, the, um, the victim of the stalking by that mayor's wife, right? That was, that was the pinpoint of transformation in my life because it made me realize that there were two paths that I could take. One was of a path of integrity and following my oath as a sworn law enforcement official and helping this victim or listening to my administrators and telling me um, to back down, to not take the report to ignore the the victim and to side with the administration on behalf of that mayor's wife, right? So I basically had this point in the road where I choose integrity um, and follow that oath or I choose the path that my supervisors were telling me and that was to avoid the level of integrity that I chose to fulfill. So if I could do it all over again, I would follow the exact same path. It's put me up against a lot Um, of negative feedback from uh, other law enforcement officials or government officials or people that I would absolutely never respect as leaders. So again, you have that personal choice. Um, You can follow that path of integrity and know that you can sleep well at night, Uh, maybe not reach the highest levels of success that you first um, had vision of, but at least you know that you're doing um, your best in your own ethical response. Um, so yeah, that there was that one moment in time where it's followed me for the last 14 years. And I have this <sighs> reputation in law enforcement as being that whistleblower and as being somebody that is a troublemaker. Um, and it's not that I am a troublemaker, it's that I, I work for the people. And um, my path of, of ethical, Values has put me in a position that um, if I chose to ignore my ethical options, I would be in a better position. And that's really sad to say that. And I and 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 I think that's why people today have lost faith in law enforcement as a whole is because they know and they're starting to see that there are a lot of people um, that don't follow the best path, and they're being influenced by the mob mentality within. That structure, and it's a shame. And I hope that you know people such as myself um, will maybe in the future start to make such a big impact and change the face of police and fire. Um, You know, I can't speak to 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 the fire services. You can, but you know as well as I do that there's people there that shouldn't be, and um, there's bad apples because they always talk about bad apples in policing. There's bad apples in The private sector, whether it be a Fortune 500 company that spent, you know, $20 million of, uh, you know, inside trading, right? There's bad apples there. There's bad apples in banking. There's bad apples in in, um, the medical field because they've, you know, harmed people physically and didn't take responsibility. So when people say, oh, you know, all cops are bad, that might be your opinion. Maybe you've grown up in an environment where that's all you saw. And you know i've tried to change that with people that i've come in contact with um, i've had actually dealt with little kids that told me they were scared of me and i'm like why are you scared of me i just handed you a lollipop what are you what are you <laughs> scared of i gave you that bear and they tell me these stories about well i, I was three and i saw my mommy and daddy taken to prison right, right. so they, they have this negative mental vision in their head of law enforcement And it's our responsibility as a public servant to connect with the community and change that mindset and let them know that we really are here to be a partner with them and help them. Right. So, but to answer your question, yes, there was one integral um, choice that I made that has changed the trajectory of my career and my life and my personal path. And if I had to do it.
1: Would you classify it as a failure though?
2: It was a win on the fact of my ethical path, but it was a failure on the professional path um in the mindset that I'm not in a position where I want to be i would i I always thought by the time I'm fifty I'm going to be a chief of police somewhere, so that has not come to fruition, though I did last year get an offer to um, be appointed as a major at a at a sheriff's office. And that were obviously, that's based, that's predicated on that particular um, opponent being elected into office, which that person decided to drop out. So I have had opportunities come from my ethical path. um, And hopefully, you know, within the next five years, I'll get more opportunities um, through things such as your podcast and TEDx, where people can see me as a person and understand that just because I'm a female or just because I'm a a Native American female or whatever it may be that they have a bias against, it doesn't mean that I'm not skilled or capable at being a leader.
1: Maybe maybe those characteristics actually make you uh, more competent as a leader, what you bring to the table through, right. through your background. Right. Um, But as far, because, and and I'm cool if you don't want to go into like a a specific failure or something like that, maybe you could talk about something that uh, you're aware of, um, somebody else's failure or mistake that could have ruined their life and they recovered from it, that it could add value to somebody listening to, to maybe they have experienced some Incredible failure either personally or professionally and they're you know in a bad place right now, and if they yeah um, see that there's other people that have uh, come back from the brink of professional destruction, you know um, through just their their determination and their right. their ability to Use that experience to fuel them to be better right so that's that's kind of where I was going with the question. Um, well,
2: with, I mean i I, I just didn't want to get into very, very specific you know things, but um, through my defense of several different um, residents in the city where I was um, an officer, I ended up being um, indicted federally. So that federal indictment was a malicious um, prosecutorial action by players in the in the background that were trying to get rid of me. So, you know, um that again is an action that's taken against a lot of whistleblowers in the public. And and so I I faced that federal indictment, was removed from law enforcement because it took nine months to go through fighting a federal case. Um, and $50,000 of my own money to to defend myself against these false charges. And then um, after I was cleared by the federal judge, um, he cited lack of evidence, lack of probable cause, and malicious prosecution in my case. And then I was sworn back in by a sheriff's office because the sheriff and I had come to know each other through different community organizations when I was serving for that particular agency where I had been removed. Um, so that was a failure on my part as far as, you know, again, following my ethical scope got me into a position where the powers that be found a way to get rid of me. And then I had to fight that. And then I'm now with a scarlet letter forever for with a federal indictment, um, and then cleared and resworn in. And I've back, you know, I've been back in law enforcement ever since. So that wasn't at the time it felt insurmountable i felt like you know i did my job in defending these two particular people that were within the city limits that i policed and i followed that ethical scope and where did it get me it got me into deep trouble and i was able to clear my name and get sworn back in but you know that has held me back because every time someone googles my name is brought up and it's held me back. But, you know, again, if you look at a personal failure versus a personal win, I feel like that incident, even though at the time it was very, very um, disheartening because I faced uh, 130 years in federal prison for the charges that I had. Um, And I had three young kids. I had three kids under the age of six. So, you know, I overcame that. And I came back with a vengeance. And I basically said, you're not getting rid of me that easy. You know, I want a federal case. And now here I am again in the midst of being a whistleblower on another agency for their corrupt behaviors, trying to help the defendant's family because this person was wrongfully arrested and incarcerated and is still to this day, almost two years later, incarcerated for a charge he shouldn't be in jail for. So I'm, I'm still fighting on behalf of the public. Because, um, you know, that's what we swore to do, right? We swore to uphold the Constitution and to protect the rights of the innocent. And I don't care who I go up against. Um, I've told them, I sent a text message just yesterday to the state attorney's office saying, "You're the only way you're going to be able to shut me up is with a bullet. I'm not going to stop. I don't stop. And that's, you know, um I'm not tooting my own horn, but that really is the element of being a great leader is just the perseverance and the, the strength to keep going and to keep moving forward, regardless as to what your, uh, insurmountable odds are. You've got to just keep that faith that what you're doing is correct and just move forward.
1: Well, that additional set of details, actually, I think really made all the difference. Uh, in your story because yeah um yeah it really goes to show what you were up against and and how your uh determination and i mean i i couldn't imagine being up against that and uh and having the intestinal fortitude to to keep on pushing um I mean, kudos to you that's that's hardcore
2: <laughs> well, you know, again, it goes back to how I was raised and and that you should do the right thing and regardless as to what your potential for danger is, you know, law enforcement officers, we don't go into it going, well, as soon as somebody pulls a gun, I'm going to run away, right? right? You you face the fear and you face the the potential for being killed in the line of duty um to protect those that you swore to protect. So you know, regardless as to if the injury or damage to me is physical or on paper, my duty is to the public and my oath is to serve the citizens, um, regardless as to the detriment of myself. You know, you've really got to have a heart of service and be focused on um, serving the people that you swore to help. That's what it's about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. This was, this was a great conversation.
2: <laughs> Hopefully you recorded it.
1: <laughs> uh, yep, it's recording. <laughs> so yeah, and I I'm blown away. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on and agreeing to be interviewed and, and sharing so much with you. You're me. welcome. Um, is, is there anything that uh that I should have asked you that you know I just didn't know enough to ask? Some you know, something that you could maybe share with uh, some, you know, aspiring law enforcement or firefighters.
2: Well, okay. This is what I tell everybody when they say, you know, I'm always thinking about going to law enforcement. What, you know, what should I realize or what should I, what should I come to expect or what, you know, what should be my goal? And I'm all about, um transparency. That is my number one key word and everything that I do is transparency because um, whether it be a personal relationship with a friend or your paramour that you're engaged to or getting married to or married with or, or whatever it may be a business relationship, um, your neighbor, you know transparency um, will really be uh, freeing for you because you know that if you're doing the right thing, Your integrity is based on you're doing the right thing whether you're being watched or not, right? So transparency is key in public services. And for anyone that comes to me and says, can I get some advice or how, you know, how should I go about doing this? Be upfront with people, you know, don't don't mistake um, their kindness for weakness. You know, put yourself out there, really take a risk um, with letting people realize that you are, Wearing your heart on your sleeve, right? You know, because again, having that level of empathy in law enforcement will really prove to disarm people and get them to realize that you are on their side, that you're not an opposing party. And um, again, firefighters, I don't think you really have that same challenge that law enforcement officers do. But transparency is really key, and I think we need to gain the trust back of the public through being transparent and. I don't see anything wrong with it. I think if you have a problem being transparent in public service, then you shouldn't be there, because um, it just it just has its place, and it's important that we're upfront with the public about things. And if they have questions, answer them. You know, I was I'm a trained uh, public information officer, and one of the things that they train you in the class is if somebody comes to you with a question and you don't have the immediate answer, you say, you know what, I appreciate that that question. I don't have the answer for you right now, but I can certainly get it for you and I'll be back with you soon on it. Right? I'm not lying and saying no comment because when people say no comment, now you feel like you're up against well, do they know something and they don't want to say what it is? Or or do they really not know? Like, you know, just be upfront with people. And that's really what the key to is in um, law enforcement to be successful is to just be yourself, be a heart of servant, um, and be transparent. And as people grow in law enforcement and that goes up through the ranks, you're going to start to see a change in the environment for not just women, not just women that are minorities, but you're going to see a change for everybody and it's going to be for the better. It's going to improve the environment.
1: One thing that, um, and just real quick, in a lot of the, uh, the workshops that I've done for, for leadership development I talk about throughout history, um, great leaders have experienced great failures. Absolutely. And there great is great adversity. Right, and and I I think that it's that sense of there is never a question of oh, you know I might fail. It's you know I might fail at this, but I'm gonna fail greatly, and yeah. I I believe in what I'm doing. Yep. And, you know, I might screw it up, but I'm going to, I'm going to be better for it. And when I come back, I'm going to come back harder and stronger Exactly. And, and and achieve at a much higher level.
2: Right. Right. Like so, when you're in the army, you're in the army, right? If you've ever, if you, I don't know if you've been in the military or not, but in the army in basic training, your drill sergeant screaming at you, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right, so I mean if you face great adversity, you will be a better leader for it because you've come back up through that um loss and you've learned from it and you've pushed through it, and it's made you a stronger person to be able to lead people effectively, so yeah, I definitely agree with that
1: so yeah, when what I tell uh new recruits when they're coming in they they're always there's always a level of insecurity because. They they want to prove themselves. But the worst thing that they can do is not put themselves out there. I said, you know, fail. Don't be afraid to fail. Everybody right. makes mistakes. What you have to do is try. And if you if you fail, try. At least you tried. And there is success in that. Yeah. And and you learn from that mistake. You're better for it. Use it to improve yourself and improve those around you correct so yeah again thank you so much for for coming on uh, you're I welcome really, really appreciate it
0: thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence please visit Hallenbockleadership.com for additional content dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.